the Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Welcome to Intersections, where we take you to the crossroads of ideas. I'm Seth Shapiro, and on each episode we explore the knowledge and beliefs that lead to human flourishing through the lives and stories of influential voices. Everyone loves a good story. No matter what culture or country, it seems we humans love a good tale, with the setting, characters, problems, and a resolution. The sacred text we just heard is from the first book of the Bible commonly called the book of Genesis, or Origins. In this passage, the Creator God starts a grand story by speaking directly to a man named Abram living in ancient Mesopotamia over 4,000 years ago. God speaks to Abram and gives him a promise that will change the course of the world and spin off myriads of stories that will touch all corners of the globe. As the narrative unfolds, Abraham obeys God and walks hundreds of miles to what is now the nation of Israel. This sets in motion a series of events that will lead to the founding of the three great Abrahamic faith traditions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Each of these faiths will draw on the life of this ancient Mesopotamian nomad to tell a story that shapes their understanding of the world and their connection to a divine storyteller. During the spring, each of these faiths celebrate a significant holiday in their tradition. In Judaism, it is the festival of Passover. In the Christian faith, it is Easter. And in Islam, it is Ramadan, though the exact dates for Ramadan change each year. In this episode, we reflect on the commonalities and distinctives of these grand spring stories of the great Abrahamic faith traditions. To help us tell these stories, we highlight four voices of spiritual leaders in one community located on the central coast of California. Santa Cruz is a medium-sized city with a university, a strong surfing culture, and a wide-open embrace of many spiritual paths. While some follow offshoots of the Eastern spiritual traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism, most people of faith in the area embrace the monotheistic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. We will meet four spiritual leaders in the community. First, Rabbi Eli Cohen, leader of the Kadesh Yamenu Jewish Renewal Community. The end of Passover especially, but even at the beginning, highlights that even in our celebration of freedom, that there are those who suffered along the way. Andy Lewis, Christian pastor of Faith Community Church. If there is hope, there is grace that God substituted his life for us on a cross, and there is a resurrection power, then that means all the difference in how we live our lives in the world in order to be a blessing and to be activators of grace in the world. Richard Gotthart, former pastor and currently supporting Christian pastors. And so it seems in many ways very odd that we would choose as the centerpiece of our faith, or we would have as a centerpiece of our faith, a celebration of someone's death. And Ihab Saud, leader in the Santa Cruz Islamic Center. We fast from the sunrise to the sunset. 
So if it comes during the winter, usually that is eight to 10 hours, for example. While each of these individuals are rooted in a common place in our modern world, their voices and perspectives transport us to the ancient depths of each of their religious stories, their distinct rituals and traditions, and their own personal spiritual journeys. On this episode of Intersections, we bring you Spring Stories, The Great Spiritual Narratives. Book of Exodus, chapter 12. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Draw out and take lambs according to your families and kill the Passover. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and strike the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two side posts, The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. You shall observe this thing for an ordinance to you and to your sons forever. It shall happen when you have come to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he has promised, that you shall keep this service. It will happen when your children ask you, What do you mean by this service that you shall say? It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our houses. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. The children of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Passover is revival, spring, it's called the festival of the spring, and it celebrates the freedom from slavery and liberation. One of the themes that comes up when we see why we eat matzah, the flat, unleavened bread. There are some scholars who believe it never happened, but the, the majority would believe that historically it would have happened, I think, about 3,500 years ago, about 1,500 before the Common Era. And, and it's, create, it's really the foundation, perhaps, for our whole faith, the idea of moving, that God is a force of liberation. God is a, a force that ultimately will lead towards freedom. But what is our freedom for? It's to take on a responsibility to stay in relationship with the divine, which is why the seven-week period is so important religiously, because it leads from the liberation from Egypt to a receiving of divine revelation, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, the revelation on how we should live with each other and in our relationship to God. Easter is uh, a mashup of a number of things that take place. As, as Christians, we call it Holy Week because we remember within a week what we call the Passion of Jesus. And within it, we remember Palm Sunday in which Jesus rode in triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem and the people laid down palm fronds and their cloaks saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple. And then we get to Good Friday, which for us is the remembrance of the what we call the passion of Jesus. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself! Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God! <laughs> in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself! <laughs> He's the king of Israel! Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him! trusts in God. <laughs> Let God rescue him now if he wants him. <laughs> For he said, I am the Son of God. <laughs> in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? It was, a, it was about 2,000 years ago. That's kind of what usually we all talk about in the common era, that Jesus was a, approximately a 30-year-old man in the vibrancy of his life. And he, during Passover, in fact, and man, many people probably don't know this, is that the Eucharist, which is what the Catholics call it, which means I give thanks, what most of us Protestants called communion, the elements of the wine and the bread come out of the Passover meal. And they were two elements that Jesus grabbed on the night he was betrayed. One of them was the cup of redemption out of the four cups of the Passover. And the other one was the afikomen, which is what he said, this is my body, which has been broken for you. And so we on Good Friday remember that passion that he died in our place in order that we might gain what he deserved. And then on Easter, um, which is kind of funny, Easter is kind of this funny name because it's actually Easter comes from the um, Middle Eastern goddess Astarte, 
which is a, a deity of a pagan deity. So it's a name that's given to Christianity, but Christianity doesn't have anything to do with Astarte. But Easter in our culture is the celebration of what our belief that Jesus rose again. I like how Tom Wright, N.T. Wright, uh, an Anglican priest from um, England puts it. It's our celebration of life after life after death. That it wasn't just that Jesus rose from the grave. Um, that would be like a, re- a, a recit- resuscitation but that he is still alive and has never, ever died again. And so that, that's sort of the arc of what it is that we celebrate, and that that was a pivotal moment in history. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead, and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. writers of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says in Corinthians, he says, if there was no resurrection, I think in the Greek, it's essentially we're idiots. So in other words, like there's, there is no, there is no thing to discuss for the Christian faith if there really wasn't a resurrection. That is the conundrum, isn't it? Like was, was there a literal historical Jesus? Was he who he claimed to be? Did he in fact actually bodily rise from the dead? Because that, I mean, that's just crazy talk. And unless it's not crazy talk. And so, yeah, that's, that is, in fact, really the question. Now, of course, within Christianity, we really do believe that. And we see that it transforms life after life after life. What, what do these things mean for us, not just individually, but also communally as then we engage our community? I, that it also is about us reaching out into the world that if there, if, if there is hope, there is grace that God substituted his life for us on a cross, and there is a resurrection power, then that means all the difference in how we live our lives in the world to be in order to be a blessing and to be activators of grace in the world. sent down upon you, O Muhammad, the book in truth, confirming what was before it. And he revealed the Torah and the Gospel, before as guidance for the people. And he revealed the Quran. For us, uh, we don't necessarily call it the holiday, but we call it the blessed month. 
of Ramadan or the plus days of Ramadan. Uh, and this month is so vital to the Islamic communities all over the world. It's one of the five pillars of Islam, actually. We have the story that the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu was worshiping Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala or thinking about like what the reason for the creation and why he's in this life. And uh, he was in one of the uh, mountains in Mecca. It's called Ghar Hira. And that's when Jibreel alayhi salam, Gabriel, I believe the English translation, is when he revealed from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by an order from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And it is important, but I wouldn't say it's a, a critical thing or a, a, a pivotal moment. If you don't believe in it, then you don't believe in Islam. No, because thankfully we still have the text between us. Um, but what's really amazing about that story is the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is an illiterate person. He doesn't read and he doesn't, know, he doesn't know how to write or to read. And yet he came up with this miracle that till this day, science and scientists are able to discover new things in the Quran, that 1, 400, over 1,442 years ago, that was revealed when science did not exist at that time to the extent that we know it right now. So this is verse number uh, 183 from chapter 2 of the whole book, the Quran, uh, Surah Al-Baqarah. Uh, so in this verse, actually, one of the most scholar, scholars of Islam says that this is the verse that was revealed on the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. May Allah be some blessings be on him. That Allah revealed to him in which the month of Ramadan was made as an obligatory fasting for all Muslims. And that was during the second year in Hijri. So, so approximately, exactly, that would be 1,440 years ago. Uh, so in Islam, we have a Hijri calendar that's based on the uh, moon rather than the uh, other calendars that we utilize right now based on the solar system. And that's why for Ramadan, it also changes every year because we follow a different calendar and approximately it changes 12 days uh, closer from a year to the other. Uh, but what really determines the start of the month of Ramadan is actually seeing the moon or the crescent, that phase of the moon. Uh, when we are able to see it, then that is when Ramadan will start. So tomorrow will be Ramadan, for example. So even though we already have a calendar, approximately science, with science, technology and advancement, we may be able to determine that. But still, really, in order for us to determine, we still need to be able to see it with the, our eyes to see like, OK, tomorrow Ramadan is starting. So that's how we actually started. And so going back to it, it started 1,440 years ago when, the, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi that from this time with this verse, and this verse says, oh you those who believed, uh, as of right now, like Ramadan has been written to you as an obligatory month. And before that, there's another verse, that was the time where the Quran Karim was a, an optional thing. Um, so, and there are many verses in the Quran Karim, and during that verse it says, so during the month of Ramadan, in which the holy book actually was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad So for those of you who witness it, and you, you are uh, able to, like help mentally, physically, uh, any all aspects, you don't have anything that prevents you from fasting this month, 
then you should be able to fast it. And if you don't, if you are not able to, then you could feed the poor, you could give char- charity in order for you to substitute for fasting the days or the month of Ramadan. end of Passover especially, but even at the beginning, highlights that even in our celebration of freedom, that there are those who suffered along the way. Many of the Egyptians were drowned in the sea, according to the story, as the Israelites came through in a miracle where the sea split and they were able to escape on dry land and then it closed in on their oppressors. And so there's a midrash, a rabbinic legend that says the angels were celebrating on high at the liberation and God silenced them and said, my other children had to suffer for this to happen. And it's a good reminder. And therefore, at the beginning of our celebration, we diminish the wine that's in our cup, a symbol of joy. We diminish it for each of the plagues that happened upon the Egyptians. And similarly, at the end of Passover, uh, we read that scriptural story about the escape through the sea but also remembering that others suffered. And so I believe that we can take that joy and live it fully, and at the same time, paradoxically, diminish it a tiny bit in some way to give back. From like the Christian tradition, there's this big misconception, which we've probably earned for ourselves, at least in the American West, of, you know, it's just kind of like this big, almost party of chocolate eggs and stuff like that. And that's pretty much all it really is. And that is not, that's not really what it's about. Um, Within Christianity, actually, there's a long period of time within Lent that actually leads up to the Passion Week, the Holy Week, where people do often commit themselves, you know, to fasting. By withholding one thing, we're going, how does God fit into that space, the Holy One? And So, you know, I think there's kind of, and probably all of us struggle with this. There's probably cultural Judaism versus actual faith-based Judaism. Same with the Islam, and it's very true within Christianity, where you kind of have kind of cultural Christianity. That's kind of this weird mashup of being American and apple pie and Jesus versus the the real faith that, you know, finds its way back 2,000 years and even even back, you know, obviously we're all the trunk of Abraham, the faith of the faith that starts with Abraham and God's promises to Abraham. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Know therefore that those who are of faith, the same are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with the faithful Abraham. We also have a certain uh, refraining that goes on during Passover. Um, We do not eat bread. We eat only the flat matzah. In fact, we refrain from uh, certain grains completely. Uh, And there's one uh, set of customs that refrain from a whole host of foods. So for some, it might feel burdensome. I think most feel the joy of it. And then there's a try and understanding what that means. So if we're refraining from bread and only eating the flat bread, uh, some people say, okay, is it like about the ego, being careful about the puffiness, as it were, the leavening in our lives, and that there are times when we need to uh, make sure to not go overboard that way. I've seen those interpretations. What's more meaningful to me is what's actually written in the Torah, 
And in the uh, Passover Haggadah, the booklet that we read during the ritual meal, is that the bread is called lechem oni, the bread of poverty. And I think the idea is that to remember at this time, especially that people may have it rough. We had it rough at times. People may have it rough elsewhere. So this is a constant reminder. But at the same time, how do we take the minimum that we have and be as creative as possible with it to create beautiful, wonderful things? You know, there's a family may be such dire financial straits that they're eating a lot of pancake mix. But does mom create the pancakes in the shape of a heart for the kids? You know, that's a real story from my family. And things like that. What do you take that represents the minimum and the poverty and the affliction and the difficulty and how we can bring that into an emerging paradigm? There's a Seder plate, ritual objects that each one represents something, such as the matzah with the haste to leave slavery or bitter herbs because of the bitterness of freedom, greens of spring dipped in salt water for tears, lots of ritual items traditionally. I think one of the biggest conceptions that we I get asked about or most people understand is that during this month, you are supposed to fast the entire month. You don't eat, you don't drink whatsoever. And that's actually not necessarily true. Um, so you fast from the sunrise till the sunset. Between this time, so from the sunset to the sunrise, you are allowed to eat, drink, do whatever you like that's allowable. So no, nothing that's haram, nothing that's forbidden. But the Quran is not going to starve you for, the Islam is not going to starve you for an entire month. No, that's not healthy. And that's not, I don't see a sense in that at all. Um, but we fast from the sunrise to the sunset. So if it comes during the winter, usually that is eight to 10 hours, for example. If it's during the summer, no, most likely it's going to be a little bit longer. So that might be uh, 10 to 12 or 13 hours. But it's really so easy and so doable because we have trained ourselves. The idea of it is to train the self to withhold from doing anything that's haram or anything that's sinful. Say, Allah has told the truth. So follow the religion of Abraham, inclining toward truth. And he was not of the polytheists. Indeed, the first house of worship established for mankind was that at Mecca, blessed and a guidance for the worlds. There is one specific night, actually, it's called, the, if you translate it, it's the, uh, the, uh, the night of the power. And in Arabic, it's called Laylat al-Qadr. So from the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's mentioned it's one of the ten last ten days of the month of Ramadan. Uh, so that's the specific night that the Quran was revealed to. And we have a, a surah in Quran it's called Surah Al-Qadr. And it says during this month that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed uh, the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But we don't necessarily fast it only for that reason. That's a part of it. But we are fasted also because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed that on all Muslims around the world, from the start of Islam till ever, that now fasting Ramadan is one of the most essential five pillars 
for you in order for you to be uh, a Muslim. And there are so many reasons why we fast. Also, I shared in the beginning is that we as humans, we tend to be susceptible uh, to sins and transgression. So this month is a month to teach us to. So what really Ramadan is, so we say fasting. So linguistically, fasting in Arabic and English, I believe it's the same. It just means to withhold. So to withhold yourself from eating, to withhold yourself from drinking. But what most people understand Ramadan is that is that you just don't eat and drink. And that's absolutely not what Ramadan is. In fact, if the, there's a narration to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where he says, if you do everything haram and you are just fasting for a day, uh, not eating and not drinking, then what's the point of it? So truly this month of Ramadan is to purify yourself. So to withhold yourself from hearing anything that's inappropriate or haram based on what the Quran has decreed, saying anything that's inappropriate or haram, doing anything that's inappropriate or haram. So you have all your senses. You are supposed to be able to withhold them from doing any sins or transgression against the Islam or even against the community member. It doesn't, even lying, lying that is called haram in Islam. But as humans, we also know that we need a, a short to a long period of time in order for us to adapt to something. And that's one of the lessons of Ramadan is that you have this 29 or 30 based on whether we are able to see the moon or not to train our bodies and to train ourselves to withhold it from doing anything that's haram. Haram means forbidden. Christian tradition uh, would say that uh, and, and the purpose of some of our traditions would be to reenact or retell what we would say is the story of the world or this, the, our, the story of, of either origins where we came from or our own our own faith's uh, origins. For us, retelling, if you will, this, it, and it's retold because Jesus himself, he gave us the elements. He took the elements from the Jewish tradition of Passover, which would be bread, which was shared among the family or among the people. And, and then there would be, uh, he took a common beverage, wine, that he, in a sense, renames or recasts how they're to be understood in this, in this tradition. And he said, this bread represents my body, which is soon to be given as a sacrifice. And my, this cup, this wine represents my blood which will be poured out which will be shed tomorrow uh, when he would die and be and be killed and so when we when we tell the story when we remind ourselves of this of this truth that we believe then we in intake those two things the simple uh, bread and wine or bread and juices depending on your tradition and, and and by eating them we are identifying ourselves with this Jesus we are both remembering him and we are retelling the story and we are in a symbolic way in, in a sense we are taking Jesus into ourselves and uh, just as, a, as in the Christian tradition we believe that by trusting and, and putting our confidence in this Jesus that we are we are made one with him in a, in a, a spiritual way that he dwells in and, and with us. And so in a symbolic way, as we take these physical things into our into our body, that we uh, are being reminded of, of Jesus dwelling in and with and among us. Why communion, for example, is so important is because it's a tangible way to remind myself that when we, as Christ followers, we gather around the presence of this Jesus. We gather around him, and He he's the one who gives us purpose and meaning.
there's been this tendency to find new uh, symbols. So, for example, in a time of in intolerance, someone once famously said that a woman belongs on the bima on the leadership stage um, as much as bread at the seder plate, which means not at all. So, of course, we're not going to have bread at the seder plate. But miraculously, for years in everyone's seder, oranges appear, which are not a traditional seder plate food to represent women and LGBT in positions of leadership. Or for a number of years, a strawberry was appearing to remember the farm workers. I had rice at the Seder plate for two reasons. One is rice is one of those things permitted by Middle Eastern and um, uh, North African Jews, but not permitted by European Jews for, I don't want to go into the details, but it's just, it's a, a borderline thing. So the rice appeared there as a way of bridging um, our internal divisions. But for me this year, it also represented holding a place to remember um, the Asian American Pacific Islanders who have been facing such a tough time and we've been especially uh, had our consciousness raised yet again so recently. C.S. Lewis uh, famously was once uh, entered into a discussion of other world religions, and they were discussing, I think this was at Oxford somewhere, and they said, so so what's distinct about Christianity? And, of course, we could argue whether this is distinct or not. He said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace being that, because if, if if it is about earning... It is about trying to uh, sort of elevate ourselves and prove ourselves worthy. Then we're we're kind of all sunk, and rather to recognize that in the Christian tradition, we we really are uh, utterly dependent on God's mercy. And yet, the good news we believe is that 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 mercy is readily available. That we um, we don't need to earn it, and it's already been uh, made available to us. And so, sadly, I I would just say, and it's sadly true in my own life too much that I don't display that level of grace and mercy to others, which I desire and I I aspire to. Islam tells us that there are five pillars. And that is first the testimony of Islam. That's to say, Ashhadu Allah ilaha illallah. I believe that there is no God but Allah, the one having no partners and no kids. And Ashhadu anna Muhammad abduhu wa rasulah. I testify that Muhammad is his servant and last messenger. Then you say the salah, and that is the prayer, the zakah, giving the charity, uh, the psalm, uh, and that's fasting. Then hajjul bayt, the doing the pilgrimage to Mecca. These are the five pillars that every Muslim needs to do. In in order to identify as a Muslim. Uh, then comes the actual practice, and the practice by being nice and kind to each other, by reading the whole book and embodying what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed to us um, of giving to the poor, of uh, only telling the truth, should never telling a lie. Um, and all these lessons, I felt that I have more uh, reason to embody them once truly I have left my home country, once I left that Islamic uh, society, because as Muslims, we all do it to each other. But I saw my purpose in the religion even more once I have left, because now I almost feel like an, 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 I am an ambassador for Islam. Wherever I go, I should embody what Islam truly is. So I don't give them misconception. 
And you asked about the misconceptions, if I may take uh, 30 more seconds, perhaps. Most people understand, when they hear Islam, they hear the word jihad. And unfortunately, most people truly misunderstand what jihad means. Jihad in Islam, it just means a struggle. So during the month of Ramadan, we struggle to train ourselves to not eat, not to drink, to not lie, to not see, watch anything that's haram, to not hear anything that's haram, to not to walk anything that's haram. So train, training our body and our souls, but really our souls more, most people think it's just not eating and not drinking, and that's absolutely right. So most people think jihad is just Muslims or individuals going, or like this extremist group, going and killing people. That's not Islam. That's not what Islam uh, asks for. It's true that jihad could also mean fighting the, fighting the enemy. If someone comes to kill you, then you have the freedom to defend yourself. That exists in every rule and not only in a religion. You have that freedom to protect yourself, to protect your family, but doesn't tell you to go ahead and kill people who don't fight you, who don't have anything against you. And that's the biggest misconception that, unfortunately, media and social media is portray what Islam is. So everyone thinking that Islam is a religion of terror when in, in reality it's a religion of peace. pastor for in in the christian faith this was this was probably this was the last gig i ever wanted um i grew up in the church uh, my dad was a pastor i i happen to be blessed there's a there's a lot of preachers kids in in the christian tradition who's who saw a lot of hypocrisy between the faith leadership of of their parents and then what was really going on at home and I, I thankfully did not have that. I had, a, I had a family of faith where the faith was meaningful to them and they lived in grace. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to live in the fishbowl where everybody's watching my every move spiritually. And um, so I went through a time when, as a young age, I, I believed in, in what Jesus did. I, I came to believe that for myself. But of course, the argument could be made that was this more cultural than real in me, um, where I found out that it was going to be real or not was in my 20s when I kind of went, eh, I don't know. I'm not sure if I'm buying any of this stuff. And I went through kind of a period of my own sort of probably more uh, philosophical rebellion against it. I even said to some of my friends, I don't, I don't think I'm a Christian. I don't, think I, I don't think I'm pursuing this. But God has his own ways and did not give up on me. The hound of heaven kept chasing. And I think for me, the big, the pivotal time was in my early 20s when I, I thought that my relationship with God was going to be made and kept by what I did. And when I kind of came to the realization about what grace was and mercy was, that God was going to be willing to give me mercy, which is not getting what I deserve, and grace is getting everything that I do not deserve, and that it was going to be given purely as a gift. That was kind of like the pivotal moment for me. Um, I, I, I could say that I prayed a prayer when I was five. I was baptized at 12, but I think the thing really got started in my early 20s when I, when I, I learned that. And then later on in my life, it was just, it's been a journey of realizing that there's no greater pleasure to sit in the sacred space with people and to lead them to the, to the living water of what God would have for them in their lives and to see these kinds of transformations in their life.
I was born in Islamic family, a Muslim family, and in an Islamic community in an Islamic country as well in Iraq. And what's really interesting, even though as a kid uh, we get taught the the life of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the story how we, it was revealed to him, and it's just so fascinating to know, like an illiterate person gets revealed this entire book that has so much uh, miracles and so much uh, and so many uh, science that till this day that science still discover more and more. Even though we get taught that at school and we get that taught at the mosque, I truly found that once I left my home country. I even found myself practicing the religion more and being attracted to the religion even more, uh, getting closer to uh, Allah and uh, hearing the calling of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And what's even more rewarding for me is being able to sit uh, in, in the masjid at the mosque and talk to the brothers and sisters uh, in Islam uh, and share about the lessons of Islam that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed for us. So I found that I'm more being emerged and integrated into the religion, but truly more and more and in a stronger way once I have left my home country. Because as a Muslim in Islamic in a Muslim community, everyone around you does the same thing. But the ones that I uh, felt more doing is what Islam teaches us. So most people think that Islam is a religion of uh, terror. Unfortunately, is a religion of uh, terrorism, which is way far. It's extremely the farthest of what really. Uh, the religion Islam or as a matter of fact any other religion is uh, if it's truly religion from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, what Islam teaches us and always uh, uh, a narration uh, from the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa tells that truly I have been sent to fulfill the moral compass of morals and ethics for humanity and when you look at his time most people would come into, into Islam why? Because the way he behaves with them. When I left my home country, I had the obligation that I should model what really a true Muslim should be doing. And I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, inshallah, I have been uh, serving my purpose. That is being good to your neighbors, being good to those who are older than you, and being nice and kind to those who are younger than you, and uh, teaching those who are the same age of you, and giving to the poor, and helping, and giving an extra hand of help whenever a help is needed, not having to wait... Uh, someone's asking you so all these little things that it i feel like it's almost like a part of humanity and yet that's what really truly the islam is My family, uh, before they came to this country, so my grandparents, came from a um, very traditional background, all of them from very religious backgrounds. Like a lot of um, Jews who immigrated here, they found a freedom uh, that they couldn't have in their home countries. But along with that came the American experience, a lot of assimilation, a lot of um, secularization and integration into this country. And uh, so many of the traditions were fell by the wayside. My family stayed somewhat traditional, and I grew up in a um, conservative uh, Jewish home. When you say conservative, uh, religiously, Jewishly, it doesn't mean um, small c conservative. It's actually a fairly progressive movement that was meant to modernize, but to conserve the tradition. So I 
um, grew up in a home that had a lot of, of tradition. And I loved it. I was probably more into it than my own siblings and maybe many of my cousins. But, um, you know, I, I saw the magic when my grandmother lit uh, Shabbat Sabbath candles every Friday and brought in the light, you know. And so I was really drawn to it. I went to Hebrew school very early. And I'll never forget Mrs. Tabonsky teaching us at age three and a half. God is not a person and not a great big king. God is the good that's in the world and God made everything. God is not a person, nor moon, nor sun, nor stars. God is the good that's in the world and made you who you are. And it's such a beautiful teaching for a child. I continue to be very into it um, relatively for an American kid. Uh, until I got to college and I opened up and found so many other things. So uh, Appalachian flat foot clogging, for example. So I never turned away from Judaism, but I saw there's a lot, there's a lot more out there, right? So in being able to make more space, I was also able to come out as a young gay man. And that was a challenge, of course, coming from a somewhat traditional Jewish background. But in the course of my own personal journey and struggles, I was able to find an even richer, deeper meaning. Um, eventually moving to California, I went to law school. I became a public defender. In studying for the law, uh, for me, I just yearned afterwards to read anything that wasn't a legal book. And uh, somehow I was drawn to a friend who was studying, a, a Latino American who was studying Taoism. Don't you love America? And so this Latino American was studying Taoism. It got me thinking, what is Judaism have to say on the mystical literature. And I stumbled upon a book, uh, actually in a series of interesting coincidences about Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. And I've since, since then it, it piqued an interest because there's more than meets the eye. Like many people probably in all our traditions, certainly in this country, um, some of it gets a little bit of an arrested development uh, as you leave behind childhood beliefs, even if you were a deep thinker as a kid, it, it's a truncated belief of what the religion really has to offer so much more deeply. Many American Jews stopped their awareness at bar mitzvah age, 13 years old, you know. So here I am rediscovering so much more deeply, thanks to the Kabbalah, to the mystical tradition. And I've said since that when I discovered Kabbalah, it opened a window. When I met my teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shachter, he opened the door. And my life has never been the same. Because I was able to see how we can integrate that in a way that's alive, in a way that meets the changes of the current paradigm, which is very different than my grandparents and great grandparents' paradigm, right? And so, um, in my personal work, as I moved away from doing public defender work and into the kind of work I'm doing, um, one could say I have to teach a lot of my own flock, my own folks what their traditions are that they've sort of lost a little bit. I also feel like a lot of my work is um, translating. And I don't mean just from Hebrew or Yiddish to English. I mean from English to English, from older language that doesn't speak to my folks in Santa Cruz and their sensibilities to a different way of understanding. We have a beautiful prayer at the High Holidays, which translates, it's Avinu Malkenu, our father, our king doesn't work for a lot of my folks. But when we say our father, we're talking about the source here. When we say our king, we're talking about the guiding force. So if I retranslate that, or at least give it over, that we're drawing on our source and our guide, I feel like I can teach my people 
more in a way that they can receive it more. And then they can go back to the original words. Ah, and it makes sense. And then to conclude, just to say, as I said at the beginning, for me, every, at least at its ideal, every encounter is an opportunity for an encounter with the divine sacred, with God. Everything offers that possibility. I did grow up in a, in a Christian home. And so, uh, you know, I, I've wondered often about that. If I would have grown up in a different kind of home, would I have a different kind of faith tradition, a different part of the world? And I, I can't answer that. But I can say that I did go through a period of time, and I actually consistently do ask myself, do, do I believe this? Does, do I think that it's true, not just a, a, a good tradition that I, I received or somebody else believed in? I, I'm by nature, I would call a pretty skeptical person, skeptical, sliding sometimes towards cynical. And so I, 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 I always want to challenge and question uh, what I believe and, and why. And so uh, how I, my, I did grow up in a, in a Christian home, but went through a period of questioning and challenging uh, what my faith was and whether I believed it. And, uh, and that was in high school and even a bit into college. And, and then interestingly enough, because I never had any plans to become a, a, a pastor or a, a religious professional, I even don't like the term. Um, but I, I really would say I, it was, I was reluctant to enter into this. But, uh, but I feel like God led me to do that. But I ended up for working for many years with college-age students, and I, I, I still love being around uh, people, young adults, college-age students, because of the nature that they're willing to question and challenge things and, and ask, it, what is true and what holds up and what, what makes sense of the world, what makes sense of my life, what gives me purpose and meaning and hope. And so I, I think in a different faith traditions, we're all we're telling different stories, and we're telling you know, that that for us, we believe each faith tradition is trying to take tell a story that they believe makes sense of the world. Uh, the, the, how did we get here? What went wrong? What's wrong with the world? How do we get back to whatever it was? And and what does the future hold? For me, the faith tradition that I that I've come to embrace, which is following Jesus as a as a Christian uh, to me is makes sense and it answers those questions in a way that 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 I, I resonate with and gives per- to me gives purpose and meaning to, to not only my life but helps me make sense of a world that often can feel very nonsensical this same Jesus who came to this earth and said uh, that not only he that he had come from God but that he was actually God uh, come to walk among us and that he came to not only show and tell what God is like and God, and speak on behalf of God, but also to, to uh, recognize that uh, he, as human beings, we're all broken. We're all, uh, we've all kind of gone our own way in different ways. And in order to bring a reunion, if you will, or to restore us back to uh, a right relationship with this God, this creator God, that we are made, in whose image we are made, that Jesus comes to this earth and not only is an example, but ultimately he willingly chooses to die. He willingly allows himself to be to be arrested and ultimately even executed in a humiliating, humiliating way. And so it seems in many ways very odd that we would choose as the centerpiece of our faith, or we would have as a centerpiece of our faith, a celebration of someone's death. And if it was only in our belief, if it was only a symbolic act, and you know that Jesus is an example of sacrifice or something like that, to me that would ring hollow or even be just simply sad. 
But what we believe is that Jesus willingly chose to lay down his life, willingly chose to die. And that that was, in, in our tradition, it was not simply an, an act of, of sacrifice or a ritual, but really uh, was uh, laying himself down as a, as a payment, if you will. That, that uh, as human beings we become separate, separated from God because of our own, what we would call sin or brokenness, and that Jesus, by his sacrifice, instead of asking us to sacrifice an animal or sacrifice something else, he chose to sacrifice himself. He makes the sacrifice for us. And so if we would put our trust or our confidence in what he has done uh, in that sacrifice, that we can, and we ourselves can be restored to life to be forgiven, to be made whole, to be reunited in relationship with with our Creator God. I want to thank the four spiritual leaders from Santa Cruz, California, who shared about their spring stories, Rabbi Eli Cohen, Pastor Andy Lewis, Richard Gotthart, and Ehab Saud. Thank you for listening to this episode of Intersections. To subscribe, click follow in your Apple, Google, or Spotify podcast app and make sure to leave a review. All archived podcasts and information about our guests can be found on our website, intersectionspodcast.org. On our website, you can sign up for our free At The Intersections newsletter and listen to Faith Matters Conversations featuring panels of spiritual leaders discussing how their faith traditions speak to a variety of topics. You can contact Intersections by emailing info at intersectionspodcast.org. I'm Seth Shapiro, and join us on our next episode where we will continue exploring the crossroads of ideas on intersections.